Hi, it's Paul Newbegin. Thank you for downloading this episode of the Past Podcast. And welcome to part one of our two-part MasterChef special, in which I meet previous winners and finalists from MasterChef professionals. In this episode, I will meet winner Mark Stinkham and finalist Matt Healy. It's been a really good summer. Especially with a baby on the way. <laughs> yeah, it's due on Saturday. Oh my God. So we kind of had a bit of a scare. Went to the hospital yesterday, so it was kind of dropped tools. But we've got enough stuff in the kitchen now that it's easy, I think. Before it used to just be me and Sue in the kitchen, so... <laughs> I was going to say, because, you know, I've met a few people now from doing the podcast, and I've known a lot of husband-wife, husband-partner duos, but not both in the kitchen. Well, we met at Champignon Sauvage in Chapman. We met in the kitchen, so we'd been head chef before other places, and then when we kind of got to know each other and everything, and our relationship, I suppose, progressed. The natural thing was to do it together, doing our own food. <laughs> and then once, like say, you have children on the way, it's just crazy. Yeah, we're in a really lucky position with where we work and how close it is we live right next door it would be really nice for the baby to kind of grow up in the environment that kind of work environment mm. but kind of is separate at the same time so and i'll actually be able to go and see my child on the split shift and <laughs> it won't be too late before i go to bed so oh that's nice i will you know massive congratulations in advance if it is the weekend that's going to be amazing yeah, yeah it'll be a busy old weekend I think. <laughs> you won't be nipping back for service no, no, not at all. <laughs> so, you know, I've met a few people now that have done iterations of MasterChef you know, mm. before. You're my first MasterChef pros. Okay. Do you think that adds a little bit of extra sort of pressure to the whole situation, seeing as, you know, you already are a professional chef when you're coming into it? I suppose so. We kind of went into the show doing the food that we were cooking here at Eckington, so it wasn't anything kind of different. I mean, so I'd been cooking this food for five years at Champignon Sauvage. I'd been at Lutton Park before, but it was kind of an evolution of mine and Sue's food. We just kind of wanted to showcase it. For me, it was never about going out and trying to win it. It was just about showcasing the food. And, and I was really lucky that from the first show, we started getting bookings. So from that moment, kind of the achievement or the goal to kind of publicise the business was there. Yeah, I have to say that doesn't surprise me. I don't miss many series of MasterChef and obviously sometimes they sort of blur in, oh, was he that year? Was she this year? You know, was that that year of contestants? I can still really vividly remember that first show that you were on and more or less it seemed to me straight away you were getting really positive comments. Yeah, it's not like a growing curve you don't go in doing your weakest dish and then by the final you're at the strongest it was all about going in with our ideas and the stuff that we wanted to produce and going for it from the moment go it was never about the evolution it was just about showcasing what we were doing did you feel that by the end though you know you are a better chef through doing it i always say that i had an amazing time and i had an amazing time because of the people i met the places where we went, where we went to Northcote and we met Lisa Allen, the places like Plaza de Omo in Italy, um, meeting Enrico, and I had amazing journeys through the whole show, and it wasn't about stopping. I just really enjoyed the time that I had with all the other chefs and all the banter that you have in the room afterwards and listening to other people's stories and what other people are up to. And I found that as much as learning as the show itself 
and getting to know people and getting quite good friendships out of it. You're saying like the word we a lot, even though you, obviously you're the contestant, did it feel like it's a team effort and you're representing your restaurant and your wife? Yeah, as soon as the show would finish, I would be on the phone and say, Sue, okay, I've got through, I need to come up with this sort of dish because you'd get the email on the train on the way home. So you'd come up with the dishes together, we'd practice them together and and for the final dishes, I didn't practice any of the final dishes. They weren't dishes that we'd done before, but they were dishes that I had to produce going into the finals week. And they told me on the Tuesday, this is what you need to do for your final dishes. I didn't get to practice any of them, but it was Sue who practiced them on her days off <laughs> while I was still in Italy. And she said, you need to get this done first. You need to do this next. So wow. it, was, it, it was me, but it was a massive team effort. <laughs> That's crazy. Yeah, you didn't get time to practice, and that was kind of the way that we kind of managed to do it. Our bosses, Judy and Jane, for the chef's table, the chef's table was on a Sunday or Monday, and uh, I got through it on the Friday, and they say, okay, you need to come up with a dish. So you submit the dish, and I did suckling pig, and you cannot find a suckling pig with less than three days' notice, but the bosses were, like, on the phone trying to get the suckling pig kind of get to us they had a friend in london who went and picked it up and drove it up here for us so <laughs> yeah it was it was pretty manic and a massive team effort when i say we i think that's kind of where i suppose i come from i think especially as the viewer it's one of those things that you don't really realize i mean one of the things that we've done as a part of the first series is we had josh overington talking about his time doing like great british menu yeah and that's something that sue your partner had done as well yeah. So was she giving you a little bit of tips as well about how to come across on camera or... Yeah, I think that helped. Sue kind of went in saying you need to kind of, not show emotion, but you need to open up. I suppose I'm quite a closed book and I went into it thinking this is a competition, not a telly show. And I don't think that's the right attitude. I think you need to go in knowing that the viewer needs to buy into you. And I suppose people like when you watch the... X Factor and you see all their sob stories you don't kind of necessarily take that on you can kind of see through it whereas for us as chefs I think you wanted to kind of promote yourself what you're doing how you've been cooking for the last god knows how many years so you kind of want to portray that across on telly in a very short amount of time so I think that's kind of where Sue was very good at saying to me you need to open up you need to kind of allow the viewer to buy into you and what's it like you know that first time that you put a dish down to somebody like Marcus Waring is one of my chef like idols you can probably imagine that he's probably one of yours yeah. as well what's that feeling like that very first time that you're laying something down to someone like that the worst bit of the show is the skill test you go into the room and you have no idea where you're going you've never been in the room before you've never seen Marcus Monaco and Greg and you've never seen the cameras or the lights so I think that is a very nerve-wracking feeling that you kind of go in there and then you're told the task what was quite nice was knowing that the next bit of it was your own dish. Yeah. So you're plating your food for Marcus and Monica and Greg. So as long as you believe in it and you execute it as well as you possibly can in the time frame, I think as long as you're happy with it, I think they can kind of see. And I suppose my food is similar. I've worked in Michelin Star kitchens for like 10, 12 years. So knowing the sort of food style Marcus likes, I love eating his food and growing up around Gordon Ramsay and him kind of coming through the ranks. You kind of look at those and aspire to them anyway. So maybe you push your food in that sort of direction, especially as with me coming from that kind of classically French trained background. 
I want to come back to some of your journey on MasterChef shortly, but I think it's important that we also talk about your style of food, seeing as you just mentioned it there. How would you describe the stuff that you guys are doing down in Nekatu Manor? The food is literally farm to fork. We've got our own farm. We've got our own orchard, veg garden, everything like that. And we just try and take those ingredients and use them to our best of our abilities. You can say they're classically French influences, but with British seasonal produce, we never try and go too crazy. It's like two, three, four ingredients on a plate, but a few different elements using those ingredients. And it's never more than that. We never try and overcomplicate dishes. It's, I always say it's really tasty food and it's just enjoyable to eat. I don't believe in these lotions and potions. It's not the, the schooling that I've had through my chef and career. So I've never really bought too much into it. I enjoy going and eating it and kind of seeing other people's takes on it, but it's not the food that I enjoy cooking. What about location? Because that must play a massive part, like you mentioned, in where you are, where you're based. Yeah, we're in the Vale of Evesham, and the Vale of Evesham was always kind of known as the grower's heart of Britain. So we kind of have amazing tomato spring onions next door. We've got Evesham asparagus, which is two miles down the road. So we try and source as locally as possible and using different farmers from around our area who kind of produce the stuff that we want them to and bring them to us. And we've got our own orchard, veg garden, and we kind of work closely with the gardeners to get the stuff through that we want through in the garden. It's never a massive abundance of anything, but it's a great learning for for me, Sue, and the rest of the chefs in the kitchen to have to use those produce and say, actually, we're going to put this dish on now because it is the time. Yeah. So you happen to think about what you can grow as well as what you want to serve. Yeah, and when we go up and see, okay, the plums are here, and okay, they're not quite ripe yet. Next week, they probably will be right if they get a little bit of sunshine. So it's kind of playing into all of that balance, whereas instead of picking up the phone and saying to a veg supplier, can I have five kilos of plums, we're looking every day and seeing when these are right. Yeah. When you're doing things, though, again, come back to MasterChef, as it stands in the restaurant, I imagine you're probably thinking months ahead because it's like, okay, well, we can grow this in however many months and we can do this, yeah. and so we're going to preserve this and do that. When it comes to something like when you're thinking off the seat of your pants, so to speak, is that a completely different scenario? Or I think, especially with MasterChef, I don't think they try and go too out of season. I think they're conscious of what they're using and kind of conscious in what they're pushing. They will never put veal in front of you or they never want to shock the viewers, I suppose. So they kind of put stuff down that is seasonal and the produce they were giving you or supplying you was produce that's amazing and really well sourced. They've got an amazing team to go out and pick some of the best ingredients using the best suppliers. So you kind of knew that nothing you were going to get was dodgy or it was always going to be the best that they possibly could. And I think that was Marcus and Monica's influence of just saying, actually, if we want the contestants to make the best dishes, we need the best ingredients. I don't want to like kill some of the magic and I don't want to sort of spoil it or make you have to reveal things that the BBC might like <laughs> might make frowny faces but I imagine like there's times that you've made this beautifully presented dish and then it sits there potentially going like cold or whatever while they're taking pictures and getting the shots that they need and getting all the different angles are there times where you have to sort of remove your chefy brain because I'm sure if you were at the pass you'd be like right get that out it's going cold yeah, get it to it, the table it's horrible when you've just put an hour and 40 minutes say into this dish and it is at its prime it's perfect the meat's well rested and then you put it on and you know that it will be there for 25 30 minutes (laughs) the only thing that saved it in my eyes was 
we spoke to Marcus Monica when we were in Italy and they said, actually, what happens is as soon as you're told to leave, me, Greg, Marcus, we all wander around to all the stations and we try everything. Because you'll never just cook, I suppose, one bone rack of lamb and serve that one bone. You will cook it two and pick the best one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. From a chef's point of view, that's just trying to get the most perfect kind of ingredient and putting that one on the plate. So you'll never just do one of them. You'll do a couple. And that's what Marcus and Monica go around and they taste all those little bits. So they build up the idea of their dish in the head before you've gone to the table with that plate. When you're in the show, you're getting this criticism and feedback and stuff like that. What about, you know, in the restaurant? Are you going out and talking to guests and seeing how they feel? Or is it more, you know, you're looking for empty plates? I quite like taking food to the table. I think it's nice to show your face. You're the ones putting in the 14, 15 hour days. And if you being hidden behind the past is, isn't, I suppose, me. I think it's nice to interact with the customers. Like, if anybody ever wants to see any of us, I think it's nice that we kind of go out and talk to them these are the people who are paying for the dishes at the end of the day. If somebody's got something to say, we take it on board because they're the people who are paying the wages. They're the ones who are coming to the restaurants and paying. So I enjoy listening to what they have to say and kind of taking it on board to say if, if somebody thinks maybe it's a little bit too complicated or it's a little bit too simple. It's nice to hear people's kind of reactions of what they interpret your food as. I know this sounds a bit cringy so you have to forgive me but there must be an element of people that are traveling to you because they've seen you on MasterChef and yeah so therefore they want to try what you're doing do you feel like a level of like fame almost I suppose at the start it was really nice every day somebody wanted to come and see you and there was that kind of we always just wanted to show off the food what we were doing so when people were traveling and coming from quite a long way to stay and eat with us you were proud of it and you wanted to be the face of it and you wanted people to come and say oh that was amazing thank you very much i wanted to put the face to the food so it was nice i suppose something that interests me i mean it's interesting to hear like your background in like champignon savage so you're cooking at two star level and by the end of your journey of MasterChef, like you say you're cooking in italy which is like a three star restaurant by the end of your journey you know you've cooked week after week after week would you say that at that level then you are operating on like a you yourself it's michelin star level i've dedicated my whole life to this and michelin star was kind of where i wanted to go i suppose with the style that we do here it's fine dining but relaxed and kind of put a lot of emphasis on the taste and texture so that's what we try and do so a lot of michelin starred restaurants are like that i've been lucky enough to stage in some amazing restaurants through my career i've been to australia worked at two of the best restaurants in australia to kind of better myself and kind of get a better understanding of what other people are doing i've been to le manoir i've been to the square i've been to the fat duck so i'd done that through my career going to these places and doing what they've asked of you it wasn't anything too dissimilar than i've done before it's something that i would love to achieve here is the dream and the goal it's not the be all and end all i just want to be happy with sue and cooking the food that we want to cook for the customers who are appreciating it i think some of those things the impression i get as i'm talking to people is if you chase it too much then it's never going to come yeah and you hear that a lot and it's difficult isn't it so you go out every day doing your food and kind of putting your food 
the, the critics of, even if it's just the customary. Everyone who comes here are food enthusiasts and kind of enjoy their food. So everyone will have their opinion on it. And it's whether you tick those boxes of the customers or if you hit the critics or the kind of inspectors, you've got to balance it, I suppose. We kind of cook from our heart and the food that we want to cook using locally sourced amazing ingredients. If anything comes, then that'll be amazing. Is there, would you say, like a trick, especially that something you have to do, is almost getting like a balance between the restaurant and the hotel, if you see what I mean? Yeah, we're really lucky because the hotel closes on a Monday and Tuesday, so we are really lucky that the restaurant closes on the same day. So the team that are here throughout the whole week are the same team. So we have an amazing balance and everyone knows their job. Everyone makes sure the standards always stay the same. So we're really lucky in that aspect. So I guess you get tasks with focus on doing the restaurant and then there's somebody else that's tasked on, we'll sort the hotel out. You're not out there having to put guests in. No, no, no. no. (laughs) Obviously there's, um, I think there's about 16, 18 employees here at Eckington. So actually we make sure the restaurant runs amazingly and smoothly. We sometimes do weddings and functions and things like that. So we kind of oversee everything and just try and make sure it runs as smoothly as possible. That's nice, especially when you can have ultimate sort of creative control over what you're doing. I imagine in some places, you know, hotels might impose a sort of style on the chefs or restrictions. It's difficult when all the chefs are just trying to do is trying to showcase their own style. You never want your wings clipped, I suppose. But you've also got to understand where you're cooking. If I went to the Ritz or a really grand hotel, my food wouldn't suit that. It's not that sort of food. Whereas I couldn't go to El Bully and start cooking my food because of the way you're expecting. We're cooking in, it's called Eckington Manor, so people expect a certain quality. Cooking for your customers is, I suppose, the hardest bit. Is it a bit about sort of trying to get your identity in there? Yeah, of course. And we do that with different textures, different temperatures, and kind of using the most amazing ingredients. But it's just trying to emphasize that with different ideas. How much do you feel something like MasterChef helped shape your identity now of your cooking? If you try and think of what you were cooking before and now, I know what you're saying in that you kind of went in to show off your cooking, but it it must shape you a little bit. Yeah, massively, because the restaurant was busy, but it wasn't as busy as it was when MasterChef went out. We kind of went through the roof and we had to add more staff into the kitchen, um, more staff on the house. So the more staff you get, the higher you can push the food. And so it was an amazing thing that MasterChef happened because it showed us off to foodies and the people who kind of watch the show. And it brought us a different sort of clientele in who love food and enjoy food, whereas before it was maybe, oh, we'll just try and get away from London for a weekend and go to there. It brought a different kind of... Yeah, it's like a different kind of audience, isn't it? Yeah. So then I suppose your cooking does naturally change we got more staff like i said so we could elevate the food that little bit more and i guess again the benefit of doing something like that is that people have had however many weeks that you're in master chef to get to know okay right he's kind of cooking that sort of stuff oh that seems for me like so people know almost a little bit what they're going to get yeah so many people came here and said it all we feel like we know you because we've seen you for the last yeah oh definitely a hundred percent like i say i can still call back i remember your series really really well and i'm not honestly not being facetious when i say that i remember rooting for you and being like this guy's gonna win like he's gonna (laughs) you know i know he's gonna win and loads of people said like oh it was just like you were in our front room and the way you came across and they said your food really shone for us 
yeah, and definitely. that's why we've come to you because the food that you were cooking was the food I want to eat. So. No, I, I completely agree. I completely agree. So the pass is primarily we talk about people's favourite dishes. What I'm doing for this Master Chef special as we wrap up each episode, if you can remember one of the last three dishes that you served for Greg, Monica, and Marcus choose one of them and talk us through maybe your favourite one. I know you started talking about one of the suckling pig dishes, but whichever one you'd like to talk about. I suppose the one we're most proud of was the beef dish that I did in the final. It was using beef, carrots and parsley. We're really lucky because we've got our own farm, so being able to take the beef from the farm. So I took a fillet, like a really lovely piece of fillet of beef, also got some braised cheek and then we also braise some shin and wrap it in salted brick and then uh, deep fry it with some potato around the outside so kind of showcasing off the beef and using different elements was quite important to me because you know you don't get loads of fillet off an animal so using those lesser cuts to kind of emphasize the beef flavor was really important to me when the show is filmed in may june and july the final was in july so all of the carrots up in the garden where we had an abundance of purple yellow and orange carrots so kind of using all of those in different avenues so we salt baked some we pickled some we did some with star anise and we also made a carrot puree and kind of using those to build into it was also equally important and then with the parsley we made a bone marrow and parsley crust to go on top of the cheek just to kind of finish the dish off and by that time by the time you've served up and that's i think it's one of the first times that you serve three courses at any one time throughout Mm -hmm. the series and by the time you get to that last episode and there's like three of you in the kitchen surely by that point winning has to cross your mind yeah, I never thought I'd win. I, <laughs> I, I, I didn't. And it was, I did. <laughs> I, yeah, yeah. I thought Scott was going to win. Like, in my eyes, I thought we'd all done amazingly well. The kind of place I wanted to get to was to cook for the chef's table, was the point that I would be happy to go at. So kind of winning it was obviously an amazing achievement and one that's been amazing for us. It was never about the winning for me. I've got the trophy on the wall, but it was more than that. It was the getting the people to come and try our food and taste it and just putting us on, I suppose, a more national scale of food destination places. Lastly, something, you know, as we before, literally then, and then I will, I promise, let you go, that I'm trying to encourage all my chefs to do is just leave like their top foodie tip to the listeners just something if it's simple complicated whatever it might be one simple step to improve the listeners cooking what could yours be i would say enjoy what you're doing if you're not happy at home then you will never be happy cooking in the kitchen and we try and put this through to all the chefs in the kitchen we want them to try and get as much time at home with their loved ones their family their boyfriend girlfriends as possible we don't want to constrict them to the kitchen we want them to flourish enjoy their time at home go out and eat buy cookbooks we want them to do that as well as working hard within the kitchen i started out at 16 and i was doing 15 16 hour days and you kind of get to a point where you think is this for me i kind of pushed through that but we don't want our people in the kitchen ever to think that we want them to wake up and feel happy they're coming to work and enjoy what they're doing i think that's the most important thing that we as head chefs give to the younger ones i want everyone to enjoy it and come with ideas not to kind of stamp on any of them and just let them flourish i know they're under you and working hard but you kind of need to nurture that and bring them through 
Yeah, I've spoke to a lot of chef friends about that, sort of setting the standard. And I think it's definitely that, isn't it? It's allowing what goes on underneath to grow while you're setting the bar yourself almost. Yeah, massively. And I think the industry is in a bit of a dire state at the minute because we don't have enough chefs of that middle sort of layer of the chefs that you kind of need within the kitchen. And the industry will only struggle. And I don't think unless we nurture the apprentices the commies and kind of nurture them and build them up slowly or let them grow i think it'll be um, a bad state the industry will be in thank you so much for your time on the podcast on this master chef special thank, oh, thank you very much thank you so Thanks much for having me. cheers hi it's paul from the past podcast series two is sponsored by welcome to leeds a new city platform showcasing, supporting and celebrating world-class events and organisations and all the various people in Leeds. Just like the people that I'm meeting as a part of our new podcast series available exclusively through the Welcome to Leeds food channel. Check it out at www.welcometoleeds.co.uk Thank you so much for agreeing to do No, mate, I'm always up for stuff like this. It's always. one of those things that obviously when I started to try and do a MasterChef special, it kind of came to me because I was watching the end of the Celebrity Series and I thought, oh, that would be really good. And I'd interviewed Liz Cotton for the main series. Yeah. And I thought, especially when you're in something like that, which must take over your whole life. It's like six weeks of just, well, if you happen to get far, get to the final like I did, everything else gets put on hold. Everything goes into it, full focus, because you have to plan ahead. You know, the TV company behind it, they tell you what, what rounds are going to happen, and you have to know, you know, what menus are you going to write, ingredients, recipes, and you have to be really far ahead, which is kind of where I fucked up a little bit, because I was like, well, I'm not going to get past the first round. So I didn't look past the first round, and then I got past the first round, and then, like, Ellie and Gary and those guys, they were writing their recipes for the final, early doors and I was like I don't want to tempt fate I'm just yeah, going to yeah, sort yeah. of wing it you know fake it till you make it so they say it's one of those things because you kind of don't want to go in with like a game plan I know you don't really hear it on MasterChef because it's not like that but it's like you see these reality shows and it's like oh they're playing a, a game and, and I think if perhaps if you were doing that it could almost come across a little bit having been in it and being absorbed in it all I think it's 90% cooking, 10% personality. There were chefs in there that were way better than me that went out before me. Way better than me. I just think they didn't toe the line. But having said that, hand on heart, Marcus and Monica and Greg have just said it's purely on the cooking. I've just got to take it at face value, do you know what I mean? And I'd do it all again in a heartbeat if I could. I absolutely fucking loved it. You know, in the time, you're like, oh my God, I can't believe I've got to do chef's table and cook for 34 Michelin-star chefs. You're like, hang on a minute. When you look back, you're like, There's, my fucking heroes are in that room. My heroes, I have to walk out and be applauded. Like Phil Howard telling me that I made his day. Paul Ainsworth saying that I absolutely fucking nailed it and it was the best dish he'd had all day or, or in one of the chef's tables events that they'd done for the MasterChef series. So looking back on it, you're kind of like, that's fucking awesome. I don't think I was present enough at the time because the level of stress that you're sort of put under is immense, really. It's so unnatural. It's difficult to be natural while you're doing it. One of the things that I talk about a lot with some of the especially the pros people that I've met is it feels to me a little bit like there's probably that extra amount of pressure going into it because in the amateur series it's like they're an amateur cook so you kind of expect them to lose yeah whereas when you've already come from a chef in background people are thinking what and he can't even do you know what I mean well that's what's funny about the pros one in this country is that 
you don't get anything back, you don't get paid. You know, they could be your expenses and your hotels and stuff like that, but you don't get paid for it. You're literally putting yourself up there on the biggest fucking platform you could possibly do to be judged by your peers and people that don't even know how to peel a potato. Why does it know how to make a sauce vierge, Alan? That's fucking ridiculous. Susan doesn't even know what a fucking sauce vierge is, do you know what I mean? So, again... Marcus said to me at the end that the final three are always the winners and it's whether you want to sort of pursue a career in well whatever do you know what I mean you can end up having your own restaurant people have gone on to have their own restaurants Liz Cotton for example home in Leeds exceptional restaurant she's a lovely person as well really really lovely I chose to go the different route and, and head down the media side of it because I watching the series you probably know that I sort of fell out of love with food I wasn't asked for it anymore and I'm still not to be honest like I enjoy cooking now not as a hobby, as a profession, I suppose, but the whole chefy bullshit that goes with the industry now, I just don't want to be a part of it, do you know what I mean? So the whole thing that I'm doing now is doing a publication where it teaches home cooks to do chefy things, do you know what I mean? And, and experimenting myself and making a tit out of myself on camera because I'm good at that. And if somebody likes that, and if that lightens somebody's day a little bit, then my job's done. Yeah, well, I mean, I want to talk about what you're doing with Cramble very shortly, but my question, I guess, leading up to that is, you know, a lot of the chefs that will go into that, like you say, will have, like, restaurants that almost in a roundabout way, like, they're promoting because they're based in that restaurant and then, again, like, talking to Mark, he was saying, we wanted to showcase the sort of food that we're doing at the restaurant, whereas you'd actually been, like, more like the development side, hadn't you, before? So was it a case of kind of finding your feet again in terms of service and when they're shoving you in these kitchens? Yeah, sort of, but since I'm towing and, and sort of done the odd service here and there, like when El Gato Negro opened in Manchester, I was there running Simon's Kitchen on the press night, so he could then in turn go and speak to all the press and stuff like that. So I was still cooking, I was still running a kitchen, and I think once you've been immersed in that industry, you become an expert at it without sort of blowing smoke up my own ass. You do something for that many hours, you become an expert at it, and so it's kind of like riding a bike. However, having said that, being in that unnatural environment of that studio kitchen for MasterChef is really stressful. But then when you go to the chef's table, we cooked for the president of the Royal Medical Society, you know, at the Royal Medical Society in Piccadilly in London. You're in the kitchen, you sort of suss out your surroundings. I guess it's if you're an expert in any industry, you can walk into any arena within that industry and be like, right, OK, take me a few minutes to, to suss myself out and get my bearings, and then you're good to go again. Did, by the end, though, you have a, a love for it? You know, was it a close call between opening a restaurant and doing what we're about to talk about your website and Cramble, or, or was it, it almost ratified your decision? Yeah, the latter, because having done it for so long, I've been under the cosh and given up so much of my life to do this, then having been a development chef for five years and working essentially Monday to Friday, nine to five, meeting my girlfriend, who's now my wife, being able to have evenings and weekends to hang out with my brother to reintroduce my friendship network back into my life to see my little niece grow up and be there at weekends to when my brother goes to the football and I'm looking after her all the things that you give up when you become an industry specialist in the hospitality trade I don't give a fuck about it to be honest like I love going into restaurants and taking over and doing things like I launched the Printworks restaurant at Leeds City College did all that sort of stuff and I do love doing it but as a full time occupation nah I saw you did a pop-up actually down near where I live on Leeds Dock a little while ago. Was yeah, it in right, the... Yeah. Dock 29. Dock 29, that's yeah, it. And I saw you did a night there. Yeah. I mean, I guess then it actually what it does give you is like a freedom because you can do that as and when you choose. Totally. And instead of having a restaurant, you literally organise 
like if I wanted to speak to Will here and I want to do a takeover at Hesse and he'd be like yeah totally because the MasterChef brand would sell out people want to be part of that which is when we looked at doing the six my concept is the six doing that pop up at Doc 29 it was fucking sold out in about two weeks because yeah, I know it was frustrating yeah. <laughs> and it's odd you're walking down the street you don't realise how big MasterChef is because you do it and when you film it six months before it airs you go from that heightened filming the final like this is fucking awesome yeah I didn't win but I finished second to Gary McLean and Ellie Wentworth you know I finished second with Ellie and without doubt unquestionable she will have a Michelin star before she's 30 her own Michelin star she is so fucking dedicated to this trade it is unreal like she doesn't go out and get pissed she doesn't party hard I think she's got a boyfriend but he comes totally second to her first love which is cooking and her ideas and the way that she holds herself and how she works is a fucking credit to this industry and she's like 25 do you know what I mean? Like 25, I was just I was getting up late and I was late for work and didn't really know what direction I wanted to be in. So I was 26 when I went to work at El Gato Negro where I met Simon and really turned myself around. But she is where I am at like 30 now, five years before. Like honestly, watch this space with her. She's she's fucking exceptional. So you know, by the end of that, then was it a case of like you know you had almost become very familiar with the rigmaroles of being a personality and and it seems to me from what I see from your website, it is almost like you're the face of it you're the driving force of it you're instructing people how to cook better so was that maybe an idea behind it that you had been used to being this personality by then it's not sort of been used to being the personality but for many years in the kitchen I've always even at school sort of the class clown the joker the, the guy that wanted to take the piss and didn't take himself too seriously I've always had the attitude it's none of my business what people think of me so I've always acted like a bit of a dickhead not without consequence, but, you know, I just think, why not have fucking fun? You know, we're not here for a long time, so have fucking fun. And it's difficult to have fun in this industry because you're under the cosh all the fucking time. You know, in London, you start work at 7am, you get your order in from Paris, France, you're tasting your oysters at fucking 7 o'clock with a hangover, then you're down in a basement kitchen getting fucking hammered by somebody and you're passing that on because shit rolls downhill. And I don't know where I'm going with it, really, but I guess... I wanted to take what I'd learned and yeah but not be the celebrity about it I think that will come as a byproduct of it but working in this industry people have always said oh Matt you're quite funny you know you should do something else you should be an entertainer I'm like fuck off be an entertainer you know I'm a cook that's all I'm ever going to do and then this is a different platform so while I've got that opportunity I've got these backers that are doing this cramble thing with me then why the fuck not enjoy it? Do you know what I mean? How did it come about then? How did you start that conversation and, you know, how has it sort of shaped up? Because you're quite early doors in releasing it. I just don't think it's fair to say. You know? Yeah. We met quite organically through a friend of a friend and they were setting up a foodie publication. So the guys that are in Cramble with me are producing content for 20 years in the tech <laughs> industry. So they film videos, then they go review pieces of tech and they're like industry standards globally. And the owner is a massive foodie, real fucking cool cat. And they were like, do you want to write some recipes to be published on our new foodie website? I was like, yeah, totally, I'll help you out. And this was just like in September last year. And I was like, well, while I've got you, I was like, I've just done MasterChef Professionals. And they were like, Guy Rob shit a chicken. He was like, well, where did you come? I was like, I can't tell you. I can't tell you, but I did very well. But I can't tell you. Yeah, yeah, totally. And he said, but how well did you do? And I was like, I can't tell you. I can't tell you, but I did very well. So then obviously the conversations with the guys evolved from, do you want to write recipes to, 
let's chuck a bit of dough at this and see where we could go with it. And that's how it came about, really. And then it went from sort of 0 to 60 in about half a second. The studio kitchen was built. I joined January or February, so after MasterChef was aired. Started writing the recipes and like test filming some of the content. And I thought I was fucking King Dingling because I'd done a bit of TV. When there's a camera in front of you, you're just like, oh fuck, there's not actually Marcus or Monica coming in. And all the onus is on me to perform. You're still not prepared in a way. No, no, not at all. I mean, it's quite funny. There's a video of when we first started, like a screen test. So now, worlds apart. Absolute worlds apart. So I've grown into this role. I talk to people that are making cookbooks. Some people want to do YouTube. Is there a trick? Because obviously you're a chef. You know how it's done. But you must be having to sort of simplify it. So is there like a trick to that? When I'm writing the recipes, they have to go through a process of being approved by four or five different people. So I write it, and I write it in layman's terms, and it gets passed to our general manager, and he's like, well, actually, I don't know what a mandolin is, or I don't know what a chiffonard is, so maybe say finally... And it goes down to the person in the office that doesn't even know how to boil a pan of fucking water. (laughs) And if he understands the recipe, we're nowhere on to a winner, do you know what I mean? What would you like to come of that then is it that you want to build this presence of teaching people would you like to run classes or is it more uh, broadcast system or what's your vision at the minute my goal is to get into the media i think the industry that we have on television is saturated by the people that have been in this industry on television for 10 15 years the reason i got into cooking was jamie oliver the first TV chef, cool as fuck, when he brought up the Naked Chef like 15 or 16 years ago. It was edgy, it was new, snappy. And then it's it's just evolved from there. You know, my dad told me to not be a chef because there's no money in it, but there's loads of hours and the, the risk and reward are, are all out of kilter. So for me, the aim is to just ruffle the feathers of the industry in the media side of it because it's all very same, same. Saturday kitchen, all the same chefs are always on, talking about the Michelin stars that they've already got. What about talking about Will here, that's got this awesome little fucking cafe that'll probably get two rosettes because his food's amazing. What about talking about Liz Cotton in Leeds, who's got Mark Owens that used to work at the Box Tree, who's probably on course for a Michelin star this year or next year. Why not talk about the street food vendors in London that are fucking changing the face of food? Why not get them on? Why not give them a platform and make it a bit edgy? Who the fuck wants to make an omelette in under 30 seconds? Nobody cares. Nobody cares. Let's do something different. While I've got this platform, my ultimate goal is to be the host of Saturday Kitchen because I think it's fucking awesome, but I think it needs a lot of work. After leaving the kitchen and going into kitchen design and working in the equipment industry for catering, it's just full of old men in suits. And it needs a massive shake-up to make it look like chefs. No, it's not sexy. And chefs are always the last person to hear about a kitchen design. And that's kind of the same with media cooking as well. It's, It's just a bit old hat. And the same chefs are always getting the same gigs. What about take a punt on somebody like me? I'm not the best chef in the world. I'm the first to admit that. But I can fucking talk better than a lot of these people can. And if I know that, you know, I'm doing live TV in Scotland at the end of October, which I'm shitting myself about but I need to take myself out of my comfort zone to know that I can do that. So if I can do that, all I'm doing is I'm adding to, I think they call it a showreel. Again, this is all new to me. And I had lunch with a well-known celebrity chef in Manchester after we finished MasterChef. And uh, he was like, don't open a restaurant. You don't want to stand there turning out of jokes and skinning chicken. Become famous, then open a restaurant and it'll be fucking busy every night of the week and you won't be there burning your knuckles on the stove. 
I don't want to make a generalisation here, but I've been like a fan of MasterChef for ages, so I watch every iteration. And it seems to me, again, coming back to this sort of pros versus amateur, that the amateurs are the ones that kind of almost become these personalities. And then you pros, it's just like, oh, well, you've done that now, go back into your kitchen. Yeah. It's like a bit like you're trying to do, it's like break the mould. That's almost exactly what I'm trying to do, is break the mould. Again, there's so much risk on the professionals going into the professional side of it because there's no reward unless what you make of it you know there's a couple of guys like James Villiers that was on it with me that got to the semi-finals he's now gone to work at the Latimer in London with Matt Warswick fucking awesome he's taken a step down but what he's going to learn from that is exceptional my mate Wayne Sullivan he stepped out of his kitchen and now he's a development chef because there's a couple of development chefs in this series on my series and we were like, why do you work hard? Work smart, bro, not hard. Rich, the big Viking guy that was in it with me, oh, yeah, yeah, he's yeah. got his own restaurant in South Africa now and a food consultancy company. So, yeah, I could have gone to a restaurant. Checkbooks on social media, on LinkedIn, and, and friends of friends were like, let's open a restaurant, let's open a restaurant. I could have done that. I, I totally could have done that. But like what you just said then, I want to break the mould. I want to be a pioneer of young people in our industry because they don't get enough credit it's a fucking hard industry and there's chefs like me and Rich and Wayne and Gary and Ellie are a dying breed because chains are taking over so nobody wants to be a comedy chef and work for 12 grand a year and food and digs nobody wants to be a chef to party everybody wants to be a fucking head chef and I suppose that's the yin and yang is TV dramatises the industry and makes it look cool as fuck. I don't want to open up a can of worms. Anyway, this is my personal opinion. On that pro series, they never get people back in. You know, like how on MasterChef Amateurs, they get like last yeah. year's winners back in so you can like catch up and this is how they're doing. And they don't do that on the pros. I don't see why not. Like, they should be getting you guys back and showing like the amazing work that you're doing since. I think unless you hit the heights of stardom, you have no value to that engine. Because it's a global brand, remember? Every country that is English-speaking that has the BBC, our series of MasterChef went out to, so I think it's 55 countries it's sold to globally, which is fucking insane. Again, I want to break them all to that, so I think they start filming the amateurs in November. The guys at Shine TV will be fucking sick of my emails, but I'm just emailing them going, do you want me to come back? Do you want me to, you know, I've got a publication, I've got videos going viral. Do you want me to come back and sit and do the critics round? where the guys bring out food to the three guys that sit in the back room and they critique it there and there. So do you want me to do that? I'll come do that. Because that's a platform for me, but it's also a platform for them, so it works both ways. Yeah, I, I, do. I think I need to be better, especially with the pros guys, at getting you guys back on. Yeah. Because, like you say, there's so much diversity going on with what you guys are doing, especially in what you're doing. That, yeah, I wonder why they don't. Well, hopefully they do at some point. I hope that changes because, again, I've said it probably about a thousand times in like a broken record. There is no reward for competing on MasterChef Professionals. Gary, who won it, I've been in the industry 15 years. He's been in it over 25 years. That's a lot of years to throw away to be judged by people that you don't know yeah. globally. Yeah. It's a big deal. So there needs to be some sort of reward. So what this podcast is primarily, we talk about sort of favourite recipes and dishes and things like that. So you'll be a really good person to ask, especially like with the amount of recipes that you make at the minute. But to start off with, could you talk us through one of the last dishes that you served to the judges and what your thought was behind that? If I thought about it more, knowing what I know now, and hindsight's wonderful, isn't it? I'd have changed it completely. But I did scallops with celeriac puree and pickled cucumber, I think, and sorrel. And then for Maine, I did Dexter beef fillet with goose fat, comfy potatoes and summer vegetables. But another thing I'll point out is I always used to 
slag people off on my chef professionals. So I'm like, why are they using broad beans and asparagus in winter, but not knowing that it's filmed yeah, right. six months before in summer? So you're watching it in open fire at home, and they've got asparagus. Like, and like summer dishes. <laughs> yeah, and you're like, what the fuck's going on? And then for dessert, I did a, a chocolate tart. So the chocolate tart one for me is I watched the series. I wasn't strong on pastry at all, and in fact, I avoided it at all costs until the point where I thought, well... I'm down to the final four. If I'm going to get booted out, I'm going to go out on something that I'm not strong at. Kind of becomes tactical then, doesn't it? So I did a dessert then. But my final dessert was a chocolate ganache tart with a raspberry jelly and a raspberry sorbet and fucking I can't remember what else. But when you walk up and you put that food down in front of Marcus, Monica and Greg, all three industry legends, but Marcus, for me, was like one of the original bad boys, you know, and... Developed a bit of a bromance with him, to be honest. When it aired, especially Chef's Table, my mum was watching my wife, she was like, why don't you fucking get a room with Marcus? What's wrong with you? And I was like, he seemed to have a soft spot for me. And I've met him since, and I've met his team since, you know, and he's really, really cool. He seemed to me to want to encourage you to get back into that kitchen space, and I wondered maybe if he had some sort of thoughts that you might do something like that, because I remember him saying, oh, you're getting your love back now, and things like that. Yeah, he did, you know, one of his big things was there's nothing worse than wasted talent, but if you've had enough of it, and you don't want to be in on the tools 15, 16 hours a day, you don't want to do it, and I was never going to give it 110%, sorry, that's a lie, everything that I do, I'll give 110%, but I would resent it probably, whereas, you know, what I said before is that if I get any sort of notoriety from doing crumble, then I'll open a restaurant because then I won't have to be there from 7am till midnight, Monday through Saturday. So what we ask as we wrap up is, uh, and again, you'll be a really good person to talk about this, is if you could give one tip to people at home to improve their cooking, what would it be? Wow. I think just the basics. Everybody wants to run before they can walk, and that's in any industry, and that's great because if you are passionate about something, you want to be the best at it, right? But learning how to dice an onion properly, learning how to sharpen your knives, you know, go to John Lewis and, and spend 50, 60 quid on a decent knife. Learn how to sharpen it, look after it. Don't just fuck it into the drawer with the rest of your knives. Learn how to make a basic sauce. Buy the books. And even if you're a keen amateur cook and you want to learn more, go to your local restaurant and speak to the chefs and just say, look, I'm a fucking accountant or whatever I do, but I love cooking. Can I just come and wash pots for free one night and just watch you? Because nine out of the ten people who will do that will be frightened off. But you'll get that one diamond that, like, this is fucking awesome. And you'll change your life. If you have the balls to do that and you love cooking and you want to... Pursue a career on it, or even to put yourself off it. But I would recommend coming. Funny enough, I actually did that. Yeah, I, I mean, so much. What an awesome experience! Yeah. You go and you see the cogs turning, and yeah. that one fuck up on larder for that table of four. There's a knock-on effect, yeah. and that's where it changes. When you go out to eat, you look at things completely different because you're like. Oh, you know, my mains are probably 10 or 15 minutes over than what they should be. But you look around and you go, right, it's absolutely rammed. The maitre d's got people queuing. The bar's overrun. If you look into the kitchen, it's an open kitchen. You can see, all right, it looks like there's four stations in there, but there's three people working. So you kind of appreciate it a little bit more. And if more people did that, TripAdvisor could go fuck itself because there wouldn't be, <laughs> there wouldn't be that many nasty reviews on people that are really just trying to cut their teeth and, and do well. So that is my biggest piece of advice. Is that the sort of stuff then that you're showing on Cramble, you know, how to prepare vegetables properly? How to make a sauce, how to make a basic bechamel sauce, how to take chicken stock or beef stock 
and make it into a gravy because I grew up on Sunday roasts and in the household of Leeds with my grandparents and my parents and yeah it tasted good and I've got a nostalgic memory about it but I can make it better and if I can impart a little bit of that knowledge onto other people a little few chefy tips so what you're doing is perfect but instead of just reducing it to nothing so everybody's got a tablespoon of gravy use some fucking pisto because you've got the base of a really good sauce all you're doing is sticking in it so it's tiny little tips like that that will take the home cook from sort of average to, to super good and then maybe get the bit between the teeth to go and ask the chef whether they could go and do some a stage with them even though you've kind of gone off the idea of cooking yourself in kitchens for the foreseeable is that what you are saying to people that are coming up to you looking for advice get in a kitchen because that's the best place to learn sure yeah totally people have said to me oh Matt you're a waste of talent uh, you should be back in the kitchen I'm like well I'm having loads of fucking fun what I'm doing now go have a look go to the box tree and let Simon Guella scream at you for five hours <laughs> or commit yourself to a full day because it's not you know restaurants open 12 till 3 half 5 till 9.30 what do you think happens? What do people think happens between the hours of 6am and midnight? There is somebody there all the time. Mise en place for the next few days, getting the stocks on, you know. So if you love cooking and you have an interest in it, more so than just looking through a cookbox and cooking for your husband or your wife or your kids, I would always suggest that somebody, even if it's a local restaurant, if you live in the back house of nowhere and there's a little pub that you enjoy going into because they do a wicked steak and onion pie, go there and learn how to do it. Because even if all you're taught is how to dice the onion properly or how to prep that meat properly or you've always been using shinobi, why not get some chuck or why not get some cheeks? Just a tiny little bit of knowledge like that and you make it at home. Fucking hell, I made it better than the pub. (laughs) And then that gives you, you get the bit between your teeth in and that's where the passion really starts to grow. So if you're serious about it, I think that's something that everybody should do. I mean, we've only met today and I can tell that you're built for what you're doing. You're so passionate about (laughs) talking and you're so passionate about talking about food. So I can't wait to see more of your videos as they come on. What's the best thing then for people if they want to look up what you're doing, look up what's going on with Cramble, tell people where to find it, please. So they can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Uh, You can find us at www.cramble.com you'll find all our recipes accompanied by a how-to video if you want to store your own cookbook on the website with our recipes there's that option too there's newsletters so it's focused around social media and you can also find me at Matty Two Stone or Chef Matt Healy on Facebook and I share everything and look out for us at local events and pop-ups as well because doing that for the first time this series what we're doing is all the links to the websites are going to be available not only through my twitter but they'll also be on the itunes description as well so if you click the read more then you'll find all of matt's websites links to your twitter thank you so much for doing this masterchef pro special i've really really enjoyed it love me thank you so much awesome thanks very much thank you for listening to the past podcast If you haven't already, please subscribe and follow me at Paul Newb on Twitter for updates on the next podcast. If you can, I'd really appreciate a nice review. Just leave a few words and it helps other people find us. The Past Podcast is edited and mixed by Adam Linder from Bespoken Podcasting. Craig Fields from Ambient Light provides technical support. With thanks to Ruby Chow for booking support.